I still remember the very first day uh, I met Jamie, who would go on to be my wife. And uh, the setting was in a church. We were at First Baptist Church of Tomball. And I still remember the green carpet and the green pews. And so I was there with my family, kind of sitting about right here in this region. And after the church service was over, I turned around to leave. And walking across the back of this church was this gorgeous woman. I was like, woo, there's actually angels in here. And so I remember... Jamie had a black shirt on, had like a little New York skyline. She had her hair back. She had this like black lace choker necklace. And I was like, I have got to go meet this girl. And so at that church, First Baptist Home, they had like a little gym. And so all the college students, we would go to the gym after service and we would play volleyball. And I made sure that like she was on one side of the net, I was on the other, that we would like rotate across the net at the same time, just made sure that happened. And so we're there and we're talking, talking to each other and just like some hardcore flirting, you know, like you're so good at volleyball. And she's like, no, you're so good at volleyball. I'm like, we're both so good at volleyball, you know? And so that's kind of what it was. That was my game at that time. Anyways, and so I just was so <laughs> intrigued by this girl. And I knew that she was going to this coffee shop later on this week. She had told me about that. And so there's a little coffee shop in Tomball, Texas, and all the college students would come there, kind of live music Thursday night. And so I'm there, and I'm waiting. She's not there yet. And so I'm looking, is she ever going to show up? And finally she shows up, right? And so I kind of I see out of the coffee shop window, and here comes Jamie with her boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what was all that one in a million talk, okay? And uh, so I was thinking, like, who is this joker, right, that's showing up with her kind of hand in hand coming into the coffee shop? And so literally as soon as this dude walked in, I was like, hey, what's up? Who are you? You know, and just so started kind of grilling him. And I'm not really like that. I'm not the guy who loves confrontation. And so just talking to him, I'm like, oh, yeah, what's your story? How long y'all been dating? Where are you going to college? You're going to LSU? She's going to New York. Obviously, it's not going to work out. I said, and plus, you don't want to lock yourself up. There's so many beautiful girls at LSU. Like, don't do that to yourself. It worked, right? It worked. I won. <laughs> it took a while, right? It probably wasn't anything I said. But, but I remember that moment. Where this guy shows up with someone I'm kind of interested in. I'm kind of, you know, digging her chili and she was digging my chili. And so I wanted to know, who are you? If I was a little jealous, to be honest, I was a little threatened. But that situation is exactly the same context that we find ourselves in the Gospel of John. If you've been tuning in online, if you're here for a while, first time or whatever it is, we, we just kind of started a series in the Gospel of John. I did an overview two weeks ago. Ron did the prologue last week. And so here we are, kind of at the end of part one, chapter one, verse 19 through 34. And there's this situation where people are wanting to know, who are you? They're wanting to know this about John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist wasn't dating anybody they liked, right? That's not that similar of a situation, but they felt a little threatened. Some people probably felt a little jealous of John the Baptist. They weren't really sure who this guy was. And so they come to him and grill him, who are you? And what's fascinating, fascinating, not only is he going to kind of talk to them a little bit about who he is, but I, I truly think that in doing this and answering them, not only does he talk about who he is a little bit, but he's going to share with them the point of life. And I don't know if they'll catch it or not, but hopefully we will today. And this is a beautiful story, right? Because it's wrapped up and it absolutely goes in tangent with the purpose of the book. 
Right, the purpose of the book is that all these are recorded so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. As these people kind of grill John the Baptist on who he is, we're going to see those themes emerge. We're going to see answers to that question and even more. We will see the point of our lives in his answer. So jump with me, John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, what we need to know about John the Baptist is he is like not of the establishment. He did not follow the rules. He did not do what you're supposed to do in society. He's a bit of a rebel, right? He's a bit of a domestic. He's a bit of a Texan. Come on, right? That's who we are. Now, it may be like your weird uncle who lives in Tyler, Texan, but he's still a Texan, okay? And so he's a bit of like a, we, we know these characters, Han Solo, Ferris Bueller, Danny Zuko, right? Ren McCormick maybe Dirty Harry, Katniss Eberdeen, right, whatever it is. We know these rebels, and this is who he is. He's not of the establishment. He didn't follow the rules. He didn't go to, you know, private Christian school and a Christian college and go to seminary and get his degree and get permission. He's just out here in the wilderness screaming at people, right, yelling at people. He's a little weird. You know why I say you're weird, Uncle, from, from Tyler? Because he's like got this crazy hair and beard. He's eating bugs and honey. He wears a Jedi robe like all the time, not just on Halloween. And so he's a little strange. And he's out here and he's yelling at people, right? He's got this message of repentance. He's like, you need a turn. Some people come up to him. He's like, brood of vipers, you know, who are you? Who warned you against the wrath that's to come? So this guy's a little different. But here's what we see. We see a large crowd. We see people start to follow him. We see people start to gather around him. And so there's some other people who are going like, that's a threat. I I'm a little jealous. I'm a little nervous. He didn't come through our, you know, kind of way. He didn't get permission from us. What's he doing? Let's go send some people to say, who are you? And so they send some, some, some priests and some Levites. And so what you think here is there's probably like an like a oversight committee in Jerusalem, and they send a little subcommittee out here to Jordan across the Bethany, and maybe like an eight-hour walk, okay, just to go figure out who this guy is to determine his identity and legitimacy. And so these people come out here, and, and you know, they're like, you know, we're the subcommittee with the oversight committee, and we just, you know, they, they didn't even ask him, like, hey, what's up, man? What you got going on here? How, how's things going, you know? No emotional quotient whatsoever. I mean, they're just like, you know, brass tacks with their clipboards down to business. We're here for the oversight committee. Who are you? And so that's the situation. That's what comes up. And now John could have said this, right? John could have gone, you don't know who I am? My daddy was Zechariah, one of the priests who would go into the temple. You haven't heard of me? Oh, the angel Gabriel came to my father when he was in the temple, promised that I would be born, right? I'm a big deal. I'm somebody special. I'm of miraculous birth. The angel Gabriel told my dad that I would be great. He could have said all of that, been 100% true, but he doesn't. He doesn't say that at all. Look at what he says in verse 20. John the Baptist, it says, he confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And so they ask him, they're like, who are you? And the first thing he says is, someone he's not. I am not the Christ. 
Now Christ, that's the Messiah, that's a messianic figure, the, the promised one, the anointed one. And so for the Jews, like, that was a big deal. They had been waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Christ for hundreds and hundreds of years. Because the Jews weren't really, like, the, like, strongest, most robust, powerful, dominant group of their day. Right? You never hear about the Jews, like, going and taking over other countries and stuff like that. But yet they've been ruled. They've been conquered by the Babylonians, conquered by the Persians. Right now, they're under Roman rule. Like, they can't even rule themselves. They're that kind of weak of a people group at this time. And so they're kind of like have this Old Testament theme all promised throughout. Someone's going to come and deliver you. There's one who you would anticipate and want, and they're going to come and kind of establish their kingdom. So the Jews are like, yeah, we're ready for that guy to come. Like when Jesus rides in on a donkey and they start saying Hosanna, which means deliverer and rescuer. I don't think they're thinking about he's here to deliver us from our sins. Spiritually speaking, it'll be wonderful. I think they're thinking he's going to ride in Jerusalem and kick some Roman butt and set up their own kingdom. And they're like, finally. And so John is so crazy. Like right here, he goes, this is not me. I'm not the Christ. And so they ask him again, verse 21, they said, then what then? Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Again, talk about who he's not. But now there, there would be a similarity between him and Elijah you know, because remember Elijah, he got, you know, two tickets to paradise, got that chariot up to heaven, didn't have to die and go through all that. So they're thinking, hey, maybe Elijah's come back. And the thought was that kind of Elijah would be this forerunner to the Messiah. He would kind of like signal that the Messiah is coming. And John leans here and he goes, no, that's not me. I get it. Maybe we dress alike. Maybe we've got a similar message, but that's not me. Actually, what you'll see later on in, in Matthew is that Jesus will say, yeah, that's John, or that's John the Baptist is Elijah, or he's like Elijah. He doesn't mean literally like there's Elijah been incarnated and, and now is John the Baptist, but, but John the Baptist comes in the same spirit as Elijah. But here he's denying, he goes, that's not me. So they ask him again, another one. They said, well, are you the prophet? And he answers, no. See, because in Deuteronomy 18, Moses had said to the people of Israel, said, there's going to be one who's going to come after me who is going to be like me, the prophet who's going to speak on behalf of God. And so, again, they're thinking, well, maybe this is him. And he says, no, that's not me. And so, finally, they're just kind of frustrated. And they're like, we've got an oversight committee to report to. Like, we really need a positive identification, you know. And so, they're like, who are you? Tell us who you are. Verse 22, so they said to them, who are you? Again, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. So, what do you say about yourself? And look at his response, verse 23. I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So when they're really pushing him for a positive identification, saying, who are you? He goes back and he grabs Isaiah 43, and he says, this is me. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says this, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert highway for God. And so this word prepare is this idea that we would be removing obstacles, removing obstructions so that travel is made easy, kind of leveling out the road, filling in the potholes, you know, straightening the curves. If there's trees or branches or whatever, you know, the rocks, you're kind of removing those obstacles. 
John the Baptist is saying, you want to know who I am? This is who I am. I'm a voice preparing the way of the Lord, saying, hey, it's time to remove some obstacles. And what was his message? His message was that of repentance. In Matthew, we see this over and over again. Matthew 3, 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, John the Baptist says. In Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in Matthew 3, 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. The way John the Baptist is using his message to prepare the way of our hearts, of those people's hearts, for the coming of the Messiah was to repent. Which the word literally means to change one's mind. Specifically to change your mind about sin, to see sin the same way that God sees it. Because John the Baptist knows, as we should, that our greatest problem is sin. It's not your history. It's not your predisposition. It's not your current situation. It's not your family or your finances or your boss. Those may be problematic, but our greatest problem as humanity is sin. And so John the Baptist comes with this message. He goes, we've got to remove these obstacles. We've got to remove them. Repentance, he's saying make appropriate spiritual preparations. It's repentance, not remorse, like because being sorry is a good start, but it's not a good strategy for dealing with sin. And one author said this, in its fullest sense, repentance is a term for a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. And we'll see this play out in the rest of the book. We even see it play out in our lives today. Like when we're confronted with our sin, when we're called to repentance, there's a few different responses that we can give. Number one is the calloused response. Like when you're confronted with your sin, when you're called to repentance, you just puff up with pride. That's not me. I don't do that. I don't sin. It's not that bad. It's this prideful stance, right? I saw this displayed so prominently, a, a documentary that me and Jamie just got to watch uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's called Icarus. And, and the principle is, it's kind of like the, the, the Olympic Russian doping scandal. And so the way it kind of plays out is that some internal people kind of blow the whistle and be like, yes, we've been doping all our athletes forever pretty much to win all these Olympic gold medals. And so, you know, they have their own people testifying, all these kind of like uh, uh, subcommittees are kind of formed and they do this research and they come back and they're like, yes, every single bottle, you know, that had urine in it was tampered with. We have 100% proof on that. You know, so they bring like all these findings and they're like, ha, Russia, we got you. You know, like, what do you say? And they just go, we do not accept findings of investigation. You know, it's like, what do you do? Like they had everything. It's an open shut case. And they're just like, yeah, calloused. We don't accept the findings. Right? And so that's a response within us. And we'll see even people in the gospel of John, when confronted to change, they're going to be like, I'm good. There's another response. It's those who are, who just kind of conceal sin. And man, when it's found out, when they're confronted, when they're forced to repentance or called to repentance, there's contrition. I mean, they're sorry. They're like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I don't want to ever do it again. But then in a week they go and do it again, right? I've worked with a guy like that who did some boneheaded things and like we called him on it and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like the exact appropriate response you would want from someone. I'm so sorry, that's so wrong. Thank you for calling me out. Two weeks later, they're doing it again. But really what we want to see when we're confronted with our sin, when we're called to repentance, is change. 
changing our mind about the sin, changing our environments, our attitude, our action. And so that's what John is calling these people to. He said, man, you need to turn from this. These are obstacles and obstructions in your way for the coming of the Lord. Will we remove this? Will we change? In verse 24, he says, now these people have been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're not Christ, if you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet, they're like, who gave you your, I get to baptize card. Like you've just told us, you're not Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. So on what authority and who gave you permission to baptize all these people, right? And so baptism wasn't like a new thing in their day. That was a very common practice. But the way it was practiced is it was like as Gentiles would convert to Judaism, they were baptized. But John's like just blowing their mind because he's not baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing good moral Jewish people. And they're like, this doesn't make sense. You're not supposed to be doing this, right? And so he responds to this. Verse 26, he says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not yet even know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptized. Hopefully what you've seen in this whole discourse, this whole dialogue between this little subcommittee and John the Baptist is he's saying, it's not about me. You're asking the wrong questions. You want to know about my identity. You need to be focused on someone else. It's like in the movies, right, where he's like, I'm not the guy. I'm just a guy, but I'm not the guy, you know. Like, I'm just a messenger. You need the one who sent me. Like, that's what he's doing. He's like, I'm not that important. I just baptized the water. I'm not Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Stop focusing on me. They can't nail him down. They can't even get a positive identity. Every time they ask him something, he's just like redirecting somewhere else. I mean, John the Baptist is an incredible showcase and display of humility. Just amazing. He's like, it's not about me. I could tell you I'm miraculously born. I could tell you about my daddy. I could tell you about my following, but he downplays every single bit of that. And there's this beautiful example he uses, uh, this figurative, not figurative, but actual language, but it paints a picture in your mind of, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus. So in those days, the context, right, would be this, is that you know Roman roads, dirty old Roads, you know, not paved, not nice. We're wearing open-toe sandals. Lots of animals trafficking on these roads. And you know if you've ever ridden a horse or a donkey, they don't just step to the side to do their business and come back to the road. They're just like all up in the road, okay? And so you're walking on this for hours at a time, you know, animal defecation, mud, dirt, all this stuff, hours. And you, you, you get somewhere and you got to take your shoes off before you're going to go in someone's house. And so like the lowliest of the low, only a slave would do this. Like there was even uh, rabbis and disciples at that time. Like you didn't go to college, you didn't go to university. What you would do is you would like go pick a teacher. You would pick a rabbi. And the, the thing was that disciples would do everything for their rabbi that a slave would do for their master except except untie the sandal. Like that was so gross and so low and so demeaning. The disciples wouldn't even do this for the rabbis. The only people in society would be the slaves. And John is saying here, 
to untie Jesus' sandal, the thing that's like the worst and most disgusting thing at all to do in society, I'm not even worthy to do that. Untying Jesus' sandal is too lofty and too exalted and too high of a position for me to have. Wow. I mean, what incredible humility. And so I would ask, how's your view of God these days? Like like John was saying, like, to do this low and menial thing, that's too high, that's too lofty. Like, do we think of God as, like, so incredible and so mighty and so amazing and so awe-inspiring? Or have we let our view of God slip a little? Maybe another way to ask this question is this. How important do you think you are today? Like, your time and your preferences and your will compared to Christ. If someone were to ask you, who are you? Would you talk more about yourself, your importance, your accomplishments, or would you just redirect to Jesus as often as you could? Right, I think the closer we get to God, the more we we see and rightfully put him in his place and put us in our place. I had this really happen to me uh, tangibly when I went to Baylor University. And so I played basketball, started all four years of high school, thought I was a big deal. You know, I was a big fish in a small pond up there in North Lamar. Um, But then got to Baylor and um, did not play at Baylor. But there were some problems on the basketball team. Like one of the guys murdered another guy. And then like someone else on the team was an accomplice. So like three of the starting five, like one's in the ground and two are in prison. And so we really didn't have a basketball team. And so Baylor kind of came came out and said, like, open tryouts. Who, you know, we need to make a team. Like, if you've got some skill, come out. And so I went to the Slick, the Student Life Center, and I started kind of playing out there. I'm like, all right, this is my chance, right? This is a bad situation, but this is my chance. And so I get out there, and the, the starting point guard for Baylor University, D1 school, right, full-ride scholarship, he's there. And so we just kind of check up a little bit, and I'm going to guard him, and he does this little move on me, and I almost fall down. I get up, and I walk off the court. I realized I had no business being out there. Started all four years of high school, all district, blah, 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 right? But this was a different level. I finally got up close to some greatness and I realized my true position. I thought I was a bigger deal than I was, but then I got up close to someone who was really good and I got put perspective. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, in God you come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, You can't see something that is above you. And I thought, man, as I was writing this, could you imagine what our lives, our families, this church, our neighborhood, and this community would look like if we took more of a humble posture in our lives? Like if this I'm too good for that or I'm too important for that left our vocabulary? And instead it was changed into this, I'm not even worthy to do that. 
Imagine what our lives and families and society would look like. You know, just a few examples, right? Maybe it's like a small group going into biblical community. You're like, oh, really? I got to sit around with a bunch of strangers and share my junk and my baggage and my feelings and pretend to like one. You know, that's awful. I'm too good for that. I'm too important. I don't have another night of the week. What if like we totally flipped that and thought like, I'm unworthy to have the opportunity to join with other believers openly and freely and to share with one another and pray for one another and build one another up. I'm not even worthy to have that opportunity. Man, I think that would change some things in our lives. Maybe when it comes to volunteering in children's ministry, right? Like, hey, we'd love for you to volunteer with the fourth grade boys, right? That's the worst. And you're like, oh my goodness. It's like herding lizards, okay? You know, it's like they stink. They're not listening. They don't care. I'm too good for that. I'm too important. I'm going to a big church. What if we thought a different way? I'm not even worthy to be considered to have the opportunity to pour my life and my experience into the next generation, to share with them the transforming power and the hope of Jesus Christ and the gospel. It's a, I'm not even worthy for that. Man, maybe those aren't your thing, but there's probably something where we're like, I'm too good, I'm too important. Like the difference between people who give and serve and join in biblical community and who share the gospel and people who don't, it's simple. One group is proud and one group is humble. And man, if we can lead out like that. Humility, it's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. John the Baptist would go on to say it this way. When he was asked in question, he goes, hey, there's a lot of people leaving you, John, and they're joining Jesus. They're going to his group and you're like left with nobody. What do you think about that, John the Baptist? Here's what he says. John 3.30, he must increase and I must decrease. Man, what an incredible attitude with which to carry ourselves through this world. No matter what situation we face or what we're in or what we're doing or what we're invited to, all we think is he's got to increase and now I've got to decrease. Another John, John Calvin said this, nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. One, the knowledge of God and two, the knowledge of ourselves. We have to know who we are, and we have to know who we're not. And John the Baptist was great at that. He knew who he was, and he knew who he was not. And I hope the same would be said of you and I, that we know who we are. Our true identity is children of God, created in the image of God for the purposes of God. But that we'd also know who we're not. And I just wonder if some of you are in here today, and you are being absolutely crushed by the expectations that you or others have put on yourself to be someone you're not. And I don't think this is an excuse just to be lazy or to be passive, but it's an invitation to humility. So John knows who he is. He knows who he's not. Now we get to see what is his knowledge of God. Look in verse 29. The next day, He saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I love this verse. This is like such a powerful, huge, pregnant verse. Right, when Crosby was asking me, hey, you want me to update the bumper and put a verse? I'm like, that's the verse. This is the one that's gotta go in. There's so much to this. It starts off, it says, the next day. So interesting about that, right? Because Genesis 1 and John 1 are like super mirror images. Genesis 1 begins in the beginning. John 1 begins in the beginning, right? Genesis 1, it's about the first week of creation. In John 1, it's about the first week of public ministry for the creator. And so what we see is these phrases, the next day, the next day, the next day, kind of adds up to about one week. And so we see that, like John's already working that into his gospel. Behold, the lamb of God. The word lamb, like we don't talk about lambs a lot or use a lot of lambs or have a lot of lambs, like, or at least I don't, right? I'm kind of a city boy. The only time I kind of encounter a lamb is when I go for Greek food and I'm like, is the gyro lamb? Because I'd rather prefer it be beef. You know, that's about my extent with lambs. But in this day, in this culture, there's a lot about lambs. And so they're familiar with it. And there's this, this word, commentators arguing like, which lamb was he talking about? What was he trying to evoke within the audience? And maybe a little bit of everything. There's a sacrificial suffering lamb of Isaiah 53 that could be worked into this. There could be the lamb that's the sin offering. That could be part of it. There's a victorious lamb that shows up in Revelation. That could be it. But I think maybe the most prominent is the Passover lamb. You remember Passover? Jews, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. Moses is there, let my people go. Nine plagues and Pharaoh's heart is still hard. Nine warning shots. And he says, okay, this last one, this 10th one is the big deal. Every firstborn male will die unless the blood of the lamb is pasted on the doorpost. And the angel of death would come and would pass over every home. The lamb died so the son didn't have to. And here John the Baptist is saying, behold, the lamb. Jesus is going to die so we don't have to. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away. The word takes away, it means a wiping away, to get rid of, to carry away. I love it, right? Because John the Baptist, his message was turn away from sin. But Jesus came and he said, I'll take away your sin. It's so huge. Like I think about it this way, like when I'm pouring milk for my girls in the kitchen and something spills on the counter. What I'll go do is I'll go grab a paper towel and I'll wipe it across and the milk will be transferred to, the paper towel will absorb the spill and then I'll toss it and take it to the dump. And that's what John is saying Jesus does. He takes away your sin. He comes and it's transferred to him. Your sin is absorbed by Jesus Christ, right? My friends, I don't know how you're trying to deal with your sin, but Jesus came to take away your sin. It's been transferred, absorbed by him and carried away. Take away the sin, singular. Why is it singular? Why is it not plural, like all the bad behaviors? You can think of it this way. Maybe it's the entire sin of humanity, of all of history, one big ball of wax. 
Or it could be not just talking about the bad behaviors, but who we are, our sin nature, right? It's not just like you and I do wrong things, but actually there is something wrong with us. Like I describe sin nature in this way. Like you ever been to a, a carnival, a fun house? You know, you show up at the fair and you walk into that like room of mirrors and so there's all these mirrors with your image and it's all kind of warped. You're like two feet tall and six feet wide. And that's us. Because you and I are made in the image of God, but that sin has distorted and warped and twisted and perverted that image. There's nothing about you that is straight and pure and right. Everything about you, your identity, your hopes, your dreams, your relationships, it's warped. It's distorted. It's twisted in some form or fashion. Right? And so that sin, if you could kind of wrap sin up into one category, you could say it this way. Sin is the self-will that prefers my way to God's. It's pride over humility. He says the world, not just Jews, but everyone, again, shocking for the audience. And I want to know that this is not universalism. Oh, great, if Jesus has come and he's absorbed and every sin has been transferred to him, yes, the work has been accomplished. That doesn't mean we get a free pass. It means we still have to receive by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, the free gift of salvation. But the work has been done by Jesus Christ. What a great verse. And for John to see that and see Jesus and identify that, he goes on, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self. Here's his knowledge of God. He goes, Jesus is preexistent and he's preeminent. He's before me and he's above me in every way. John the Baptist continues, verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. You can circle that word remain, that's huge. I myself did not know him, but he sent me to baptize the water, said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I've seen that born witness that this is a son of God. And you hear some things in there, it might be a little confusing with John going like, I didn't know him. And you're like, yeah, you did. You guys were like cousins. You were relatives. Of course you knew each other. But what he's saying here is that I did not know that my cousin Jesus was the Messiah until I received divine revelation from God and I saw the sign, which is a dove descended down. This is a sign, a symbol. And it says the Holy Spirit came, descended on Jesus, and remained on Jesus. And here's why that word remain is so big and so huge and so important. Because here's what I believe. Maybe wrong about this. We can debate on it later. But here's what I believe. Jesus came to earth. I don't think he forsake his humanity or his divinity or just gave it up or just emptied himself of it. I truly think he possessed and maintained his divinity at all times. But what I think he did is he didn't tap into it. And he didn't use his divinity Right, it's like me and you, if we were fighting and I fought with one hand behind my back, that hand's still there, it still exists, I'm just not using it. 
I think this is what Jesus did. He came, but to, to fully live as a human, I think he tied his divinity behind his back. So how did Jesus do all the miraculous things he did? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit descended on him and remained on him, as in like never left him. I think that's how, because he lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. And how is that important to you and I? Because you and I can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. That we could be filled and immersed with the Spirit. Man, it's just incredible, right? If you want to be like Christ, you ought to seek the Spirit. Because Jesus, the Spirit remained on him, never left him. So for us to be Christians, little Christ, we have to seek that out. And it's available to us that Jesus would baptize us with the Spirit. So the priests and the Levites, they came with this question, who are you? But here's what I believe. I believe they received the point of life. And you ask, what is it? What's the point of our life? I would say it's this. Our point is two point. Not to ourselves, but we spend our lives pointing to the Lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world. We spend our lives pointing to the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We spend our lives pointing to the Son of God, God's chosen one. That's what we do, right? And so I'd ask this, is like, what is your life pointing people to? Like, what are your words and your actions pointing towards? See, we won't finish the rest of chapter one. Next week, Ron will be back and he'll, he'll jump into chapter two, the wedding feast at Cana, Jesus' first miracle. But what happens at the end of chapter one is this, that there's just a string of followers who start attaching themselves to Jesus based on John's testimony right here. And that's my prayer and my hope for every single one of us that the way we live our lives, people start attaching to Jesus Christ because of our testimony. Because we're not pointing to ourselves, but we're pointing to the one who can take away sin. We're pointing to the one who can save, the one who baptizes in the spirit. That's my hope and prayer for us. So how does John the Baptist's life end? It's tragic, it's terrible. King Herod, he divorces his wife and he goes and grabs and takes his brother's wife and he marries her. Not a good thing to do. I wouldn't advise it, right? John rightfully, justfully speaks out against this. He says, hey, you should not do that. Now, the wife who was Philip's, who is now Herod, Herodias, she does not think kindly of John for calling her out on this. And so she, she, she kind of pushes her new husband, Herod, to put him in prison. So John the Baptist is put in prison. Their daughter comes one day and has this big party, this big feast, and she does this magnificent, marvelous dance. And so Herod, in a moment of just, you know, arrogance and showing off his generosity, he tells the daughter, he goes, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, name it, it's yours. She runs to her mom, Herodias, and she says, what should I ask for? She comes back to Herod and she says, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so Herod, in front of everybody, can't really backpedal on this one, says, go do it. 
So the executioner goes, takes John's head off, and brings it back to the party on a platter. It's a horrible way to end. And you would think, man, John's left here. He's got no followers. He's in prison. He's beheaded to end his life. But I want you to hear something that Jesus says about John the Baptist. In both Luke 7 and Matthew 11, Jesus speaks this. He says, I tell you that among those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. His own words of his own mouth, Jesus says, the greatest person to ever live is John the Baptist. Why? I mean, like, what is the formula for being the greatest person to have ever lived that Jesus identifies that? I think it's this. It's to be humble and to be a herald. Less of me, more of Christ. He must increase and I must decrease. John's point was to point. And Jesus said, that's the greatest that's ever lived. I pray that that would be true of you and I. Our point would be to point. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this incredible witness of John the Baptist. What an amazing man, what an amazing testimony. I love that they they come to get an answer and he won't even acknowledge, he completely redirects always to you. God, I need that. I'm a proud person. I love me some me. God, I want to be more humble. I want to think more of you. I want to think more of others than I do of myself. God, I don't want to live this life just walking around pointing to myself and saying my wants and my desires and my preferences and my comfort. God, but that I would decrease. So Jesus, that you would increase so that everyone who comes into contact with me and who comes into contact with these congregants, God, would be pointed to, directed to the Lord and Savior and the one who takes away the sin of the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. At this time, we're going to go into our response song. And so I'd love for you to respond in any way that God has moved in your life. There's cards in the seat back pockets in front of you. For those watching online, you can go to our digital bulletin, rpc.fm slash bulletin. So many ways there you could join a small group, say, I'm ready to volunteer. I'm ready to be baptized, trust in Christ as my Savior. I've never had my sins taken away. I've never done that. We would love for you to do that. If you want to give as a response to the goodness of God and what he's given you, you can do that there online. You can do it here in the house in the building. There's offering baskets on the way out. But during this song, man, I would invite you to respond. I would invite you to sing and to worship our good God.